go before us, and it's what we're remembered by when we're gone. Now, Shakespeare may suggest to us that names are arbitrary, since a rose by any other name would still smell just as sweet. But we all recognize that there's weight to a name. There's a reason why parents agonize over what to call their kids. Now, when Ellie and I were first expecting Titus, we came to an agreement pretty early on about his first name. I had always wanted to, name, uh, to have a son named Titus, and Ellie graciously agreed to go along with me. It took us a little bit longer to come to a firm decision on his middle name, and honestly, we, we picked it because we thought it sounded good. <laughs> but the name that we didn't have to debate at all was his last name, Lane. That was a given. And it isn't arbitrary. Actually, it serves a very important purpose, namely because it identifies him as our son. That name, really above his first or middle names, carries weight because it's linked to a history. He has a a heritage. Our children get more than just our genes or our property when we're gone. They get our name. And Proverbs chapter 22 verse 1 tells us that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and that favor is better than silver or gold. Now, names in Scripture often carry a great deal of significance and meaning. One of the really the defining features of God's people is that they are called and identified with God's own name. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, Moses actually says to the people of Israel, You are sons of the Lord your God meaning that they were to take on the life and distinction, the attributes of God's holiness for their own lives. Be holy as I am holy, God says to his people. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, God says in Isaiah 43. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Jesus elevates that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, when he says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. The meaning and the significance of that promise being that Jesus gives his people, those who are united to him by faith, a new and a better name, a title which is far more valuable than any other to be found on this earth. Names are important. Now, this far in the book of Acts, we've actually been looking at the power and the significance of the name of Jesus in some spectacular ways, showing, as Peter testified to the Jewish council, that there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. In our passage this morning, we see the power of Jesus' name again, only we see it in the context of the life of his body, the church. Now Luke takes a step back from looking specifically about how Jesus prevailed against outward pressures that were being put on the church to look inwardly to how Jesus prevailed in the church, establishing and defending his glory within it. 
Luke captures a glimpse uh, uh, for us about what life in the body of the early church looked like so that we see more clearly by their example what it means to live as those who bear the name of Jesus. He also goes on to record a disturbing attempt by Satan to disrupt that ongoing life of the church and how God defended the purity of his people. That's what we're looking at today. So as we read what he's got recorded for us here, uh, we're getting a better grasp on what God's priorities are and what he calls the church to uh, to pursue as we walk together as his people, as we bear his name. So let's look at our passage uh, together. Let's begin by reading. If you would, please stand with me as I read from God's word, as I read Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. This is the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. The name of the Lord is holy. That is why God warns us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
as we look <clears throat> at what Luke has recorded for us here about the early church and how it grew, we see that there are two priorities that seem to rise to the top for the church here. And they are these, unity and purity. Unity and purity. Now, it would be too simple to say that these are, these are God's only priorities for the church, only that these are two essential ones that are brought to our attention by this text. If we lay this out linearly with seeing God's priorities and how it works itself out in, the, in what is recorded for us here, we can see how the pursuit of these two priorities produced, in effect, two things in the church. Joy-filled encouragement and awe-felt reverence. So that brings us to our main idea this morning, which is this, that God produces joy-filled encouragement and awe-felt reverence in his people by calling us to unity and purity as his people. God produces joy-filled encouragement and awe-felt reverence in his people by calling us to unity and purity as his people. We want to look at that uh, with, with two, two points this morning, how God uh, works uh, towards those ends. So first we want to look at how God unites us as one people. So God unites us as one people. And second, we want to look at how God defends us to walk together as a holy people. We want to look at the defense of God's holiness. Now, for the past few weeks, as we've been making our way through the book of Acts, uh, especially Acts uh, chapters 3 and 4, Luke really has zoomed us in tightly to, to really specific examples uh, of the sort of things that were happening in Jerusalem as the church, and specifically the apostles preached the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And now in, in our passage here, he zooms us back out to look again at the overall situation of the church. There are a number of similarities between what Luke has to say here in Acts chapter 4 and what he's already said about the daily lifestyle of the church and what they did when they came together, uh, which we saw back in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the main thing that really stands out here, though, is the way that Luke focuses now on the way that these believers were caring for one, one another in really tangible ways. Now, as I mentioned before, this passage is really introspective of the church, which is a change of pace from what we've been looking at as Luke has been telling us about uh, the healing of that lame man and everything that went on as a result with the leaders uh, who sat on the Jewish council. So since chapter 2, we've seen that the number of believers in Jerusalem had, had exploded. It had gone from consisting of about 120 people who had been gathered together on the day of Pentecost to now at least 7,000, probably more than that. And, and at this point, Luke is going to stop really giving us specific numbers, um, but th with the last one, knowing that now at this point, we've got at least 5,000 men who came to faith after Peter and John were preaching in the temple in Acts 4, chapter, uh, Acts 4, 4. So we're moving away from specific numbers, and now we're looking at the life of the body here. Uh, what he's focused on now is to, is, and what he's trying to do is to paint a picture of the sort of effect that the gospel was having inside the church. Now, as, we've as we consider what he's recorded here, we find God masterfully working in those who are now united to Jesus by faith, now being united to one another in love. 
while it might seem initially like Luke is repeating himself, I'm really glad actually that he took time to explain us what the life of the early church was like together because of the way it proves the power of the work of Jesus, not just to save us from, from, from the consequences of our sin, but actually to make us new in him. We're looking at the sort of community uh, of, uh, that is meant to define the people of Christ. I'm thinking back again to what Jesus prayed in the upper room, not just for his immediate disciples, but for all who would believe in his name through their testimony. We see Jesus' priority for the unity among his, for unity among his people. Uh, as he was gathered there with his disciples, we, we read in John 17 how Jesus prayed to the Father that we all might be one just as he and the Father are one. He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. So as we read what Luke has recorded for us here, we should be connecting the dots of what Jesus clearly prioritizes for his people and how it's actually playing itself out here. This is the Father giving God the Son what he asked, unifying believers together to live out the love of Christ by, uh, by, and by effect bringing glory to the name of Jesus. This is a divine sort of unity, something that goes beyond what happens when we're just around people with a common interest. We're meant to understand that the credit for this, this sort of community, is meant to go to Christ. This is, this is as much a work of his power as when the lame man lying at the gate of the temple was healed in his name. It's his work being applied by the Holy Spirit according to the will of God the Father, which is producing this radical life together within the church. God is the one making the good news of the gospel take effect in these first believers, and God is the one who produces this sort of unity in the church today. So while we might be tempted to look at this passage sort of just as a footnote about what was going on, the reality is that this passage and passages like it are intended to, to lead us into doxology, praising God for the way he takes hostile rebels like you and me, redeems them through the blood of his son, raises them up in new life in him, and gives them a new name with a heavenly inheritance, joins them to a, a heavenly family, and gives them hearts that are totally new. Now Luke paints this doxology with four colors, four ways that we see God at work uniting his church together in love for Christ and in love for one another. What I want to do here is to, to point those out to you. So first, he, he brings to the forefront about how they were united to Christ by faith. If there's one thing to define the church, it is faith. Notice how Luke leads off here. Now the full number of those who believed. So he's drawing a line here. 
There's features of unity that he's about to describe which define the early church, uh, which were exclusive of those who had, first and foremost, been united to Christ by faith. Uh, These are people who had heard the gospel. They'd been convicted of their sins. They had repented, and they had believed the good news that Jesus had died and risen again to set them free. Furthermore, according to Acts 2, verse 41, we see that they'd actually received the mark of that unity by being baptized in Jesus' name. Now, this is a critical distinction. In the rest of chapter 4, Luke has recorded some remarkable examples of righteous works that men and women of the early church were doing, how they were caring for one another in selfless ways. But he leads off this way. And by doing so, Luke confirms what the rest of Scripture teaches, that good works are only good if they come from a heart that has been made righteous. It's not beyond the ability of any man or woman, believer or unbeliever, to do things for other people, like selling one's possessions or giving generously. But God makes it very clear. He is not interested merely in outward works. He's also perhaps more fundamentally, concerned with the will and the heart and the desires of the person and th- which produce those things. And therein really lies the reason it is so important that Luke draws this line of distinction. This passage is not a manual on how to do good things so much as it, as it is a manual on how to live by faith. Faith is the priority here. In John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now to abide in Christ, that's really old language, but to abide in Christ really simply is to live in Him. And to live in Him, we must first believe the good news which has been preached about Him. So it stands that when Luke, that, that Luke would have us to understand that the fruit of unity uh, which is we're seeing in the church, that it is produced by Christ in us through faith. Our faith is what distinguishes us as God's people. We belong to Christ, and as a result of His work through faith, we also belong to one another. And that leads us to our second, uh, to see our second thing here about how God is at work uniting the church together, which Luke brings to our attention. We see this, uh, we see also, Luke tells us that this common faith in Christ was uniting the church together. So the church was not only united to Christ by faith, they were also united together in love. Now we live in a culture that really majors on the individual. And it's very easy for that attitude of individualism to creep in, over into the church, to, 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 uh, to really to impact the priorities of the church. But Jesus' prayer for his people highlights how he desires for us to be one together. Not in a way that erases the things that make us unique and different, but in a way that brings us together as one body. 
In Romans chapter 12, verse 4, Paul explains, he actually uses the illustration of a body. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in Christ, and individually members one of another. He goes on to say in Ephesians 4, uh, in verses 4 through 6, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. As Luke describes the early church, we see how their faith united them not only to Jesus, but also to each other. He says that they were of one heart and soul, which means they were of one purpose, one desire, a desire to see Jesus exalted, and that they had one life in the Spirit with one another. Now, they weren't... They weren't, so we see they're not, just like, they're not just alike with each other in terms of their common conviction. They're actually alike in purpose and desire, one, one heart together. Luke is saying that their lives were becoming intertwined with one another. When one of them was in need, they all felt it. When one of them had plenty, they shared it. They were walking together, rejoicing in each other's joys and bearing with one another in every sorrow. Uh, There's a reason as a church we have a statement of faith and we also have a church covenant. The statement of faith expresses what we are united and what we believe. But the church covenant expresses how we have committed ourselves as followers of Christ to one another. It is promises we make to one another in response to God's word about how we are to live with one another. It's important for us as followers of Jesus not merely to be part of the church because we agree doctrinally or intellectually, but also because we love one another, because we are being drawn together by the Spirit who is at work in us to do so. Our love for Christ is meant to drive us to have an enduring love for one another, a love that is rooted in truth and action, which leads us to the third way we see God at work uniting the church here. And that is in the way that the gospel continued to go out. In verse 33, Luke says, And with great power the the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the the witness of the apostles to Jesus' resurrection is really, when we think about it, that's what first brought the church together. And the church, then, we can understand, can only hope to remain together as long as we remain united to this message. Luke explains uh, that uh, in this ongoing work that great grace was upon them all. He's attaching this great grace to the preaching of the gospel. Now, I've said before, and I'll say it again, we never are meant to graduate from the school of of the gospel. The gospel is not a basic understanding, some basic beliefs that you just get a grasp of and then move on from. No, the gospel is something that we're meant to grow into. And as we do, it continues to have its gracious effect on us as we see it was having in the early church. Luke indicates to us that the path for unity in the church is the path of the gospel that speaks to us about God's grace and the riches of his love which he has poured out on us in Christ. This unity is built around truth, a truth which directs us and motivates us to live the way that we live. It brings us to the fourth way that we see God working to unite the church, 
and that is in the way that they sacrifice for one another. Luke says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In fact, in verse 34, he says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, it's plain, I think we all know, you will learn a lot about a person and about what they value by the way that they handle their money. What we learn about the early church is that they didn't just love one another in word. They loved each other in deed. They didn't hold back from one another. When someone had a need, the believers rushed to meet it. They even gave preemptively so that when a need did arise, there was money on hand to meet that. The early church gave like this because God had given them a new heart with new priorities. Luke doesn't say that the apostles forced or commanded anyone to give up what had belonged to them. Rather, we see that they were giving freely, that their hearts were overflowing in what they did for one another, so that as they had opportunity, according to what they had received, they gave. What we see their church doing here is following Jesus, taking his mind for their own, emptying themselves as he emptied himself for us when he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. They were holding their possessions and their resources as something that was expendable because they knew that they had received a better inheritance, an eternal inheritance in Christ. The gospel changes the way that you use money. It changes the way that you use whatever resources you have in your possession. It takes those things from being something to be pursued to being something that is meant to be used in the pursuit of something greater. Money is a dangerous tool because it's a powerful thing that is easy to love. But it is a tool that God has given us. And he gives us an example right here about how to use it well. In verse 36, we find Luke highlighting one man in particular, a man named Joseph, better known to us as Barnabas, who used his money and his resources well. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and confess here. Barnabas is one of my favorite guys in the Bible. He's so genuine. What we see, what Luke tells us about Barnabas here, is that he was a native of Cyprus. He was also a Levite, which makes things really interesting because technically the law did not allow Levites to own land. So we don't know the details of how he got this property. We don't know why he had it. But Luke tells us this guy was one of the people who sold his field and gave the money to the apostles to be used in the ministry of the church. Now, we know that Barnabas wasn't the only person who was doing this sort of thing. Uh, and we have to understand Luke has some reasons for highlighting him in particular. Uh, and I think some of those reasons are simply that Barnabas is going to play a really important role in the history of the church. And this is a really effective way to kind of introduce him to us. But I think that Luke brings Barnabas up in particular just because Barnabas uh, has a way of, and he just embodies the spirit of Christ in just a vibrant way. Um, Luke tells us that, that uh, Barnabas was actually his nickname, uh, that it means son of encouragement. Uh, in that case, when you name someone son of encouragement, you're saying that they embody every attribute. They're an encouraging person. Like if encouragement could have kids, Barnabas would be one of them. 
Actually, uh, Luke tells us that it was the apostles who called Barnabas this. And if we, we just survey a little bit, we'll, we'll, we'll see this as we continue through the book of Acts. But if we look uh, really quickly at the rest of what Luke says about this guy, uh, we learn why the apostles like to call him this. Barnabas was just a genuine guy who took big risks to show the love of Christ to others. This is the guy who vouched for Paul in Jerusalem when everyone else was afraid to meet him. Barnabas was the guy who had gone to the church of Antioch, and when he saw they had a need, he left Antioch, he went and found Paul in Tarsus, and he brought him there. He cared that much about the church and about Paul. Barnabas is the guy who went with Paul on the first missionary journey, and he even defended the gospel of grace at the Council of Jerusalem when they were discussing uh, whether or not Gentiles had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Barnabas is a standout guy. And by bringing him up here, we shouldn't think that Luke is trying to put him on a pedestal. Actually, I think that would completely go against what we see about Barnabas' character. He's not a guy who wants to be noticed. The reason I think Luke brings him up here is because in seeing what he did, we see the result of what happens when God works to unify his people in this gospel-fueled living. It's, It's hard not to think of Barnabas when we read of Paul's instructions to the church in Romans 15 when he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is glorified in his people when we live together in such harmony and and, and humility and unity in accord with Jesus Christ. Barnabas was not just a man who, who, who did this. He was a force of encouragement in the church. He did all of this by using what he had to serve his brothers and sisters, not in an attempt to make a name for himself, but all for the sake of the glory of Christ. So as we read about the way that the church was living together, how they were caring for one another, we need to take a hard look at our own lives to ask ourselves, how can we follow Barnabas' example of how we can encourage one another in our walk with Christ? In the same way that God brought the church together in the days of the apostles, so he has also brought us together by the same gospel, in the same spirit, with the same purpose of making much of the name of Christ. It is time for each of us to commit ourselves, not just to be thinking about the church as something that is called to serve us, but as something which we are called to serve, whatever way God has called and equipped us to do that. Let us each seek to be a son of encouragement. Now, all of that, that calling comes with a warning. And that brings us to our second point. Because Luke wants us to be aware that there is a way to go about serving and giving that misses the purpose for which God has called us to do those things. It is a real risk. And so we see in chapter 5, verse 1, that Luke says... 
but, now you notice, when he uses that word there, he's drawing a point of comparison. We have Barnabas, the son of encouragement, but we also have someone else. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. That sounds good. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ah, something is different. Now clearly from the way he's written this, Luke means for us to compare the way that Barnabas and these other believers were giving to the way Ananias and Sapphira gave. Now, as we look at this, we see both sold property. Both submitted money that they didn't have to give uh, from the sale to the apostles to be used in the ministry of the church. But we see that where Barnabas gave all with a whole heart, Ananias and Sapphira gave only part of what they had gotten from the sale. Now, tuck that little detail away because we're going to come back to that. There's a bigger issue here than that they didn't give all of what they received. Actually, that's not really the problem here. If, you, if, we, go to Luke, uh, if we look at verse 3, uh, when uh, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Ah. So the issue is not that Ananias sold land. The issue is not that he didn't give all the money to the apostles. The issue was the hypocrisy of his own heart. Namely, he wanted to look in the eyes of others like Barnabas. He wanted to receive a claim. He wanted to get that title. Look, everybody, Ananias is a son of encouragement too. But he also wanted to enjoy his money. The issue here is that while Ananias gave, he gave out of a wicked heart. And so he gave a polluted offering. That's the issue. In John chapter 4, Jesus says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Ananias gave a measure of worship to God, but he was also lured to, ser- to serve other desires. He figured nobody would know. Besides, he's doing a good thing, right? I mean, he's giving to the poor. He's giving to help his fellow brothers and sisters. But he'd miss where Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So in a moment of temptation, we see that Ananias had chosen to try and toe the line, to serve money and self while appearing righteous. And in the end, it cost him greatly. And before we get directly into what happened to Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, we need to take a moment to look at how they got to this point in the first place. Because Luke means this to be a warning to you and me. You see, Ananias and Sapphira were professing believers. You might try and argue on the basis of their sin and the way God struck them down that they weren't, but I think that the evidence of the text actually intends for us to understand that they were Christians. Luke has clearly numbered them with the church among those who believed. The reason this is a warning to you and to me and to everyone who professes faith in Christ 
is that we must not think that by virtue of that faith that we are somehow immune from falling into sin the way that they did. In, this, in his response to this offering, Peter actually identifies that Satan was at work here, filling Ananias' heart and that of his wife to conspire against God. Now, that sounds really bad, and it is. But remember that all sin is conspiracy against God. All sin is rebellion against his throne. So although when, when Christ saves a man or a woman, he gives them a new heart with new desires, although the old man, the, the flesh, is crucified, that does not mean that the danger is no longer there. We are still being perfected. We are still at risk. So though the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in God's people, there's not one person in this room who no longer has taste for sin. I, you all know that. In fact, the, the Apostle John says that if we say we do not have sin, that we make God a liar and the truth is not in us. So before we jump on and start berating Ananias and Sapphira for this wicked decision, a decision that any one of us could make, let us look with fear and trembling on the tastes and the desires of our own hearts and recognize how magnetized we are to going after other things. I believe that Satan had convinced Ananias and Sapphira they were going to get away with this. That they were actually doing a good thing. And then why shouldn't they benefit from this as well? But God knew about their conspiracy. And their sin wasn't ultimately against Peter or the church. It was against God. Listen again to this disturbing statement from Peter. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have lied not to men but to God. And then we see him talking to Sapphira a few hours later. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? We could try to explain what happened to this couple naturally, perhaps as a sudden heart attack after being found out. But whatever, whatever the means, the timing of their death will only allow us to understand that this was nothing less than divine discipline. In Luke in verse 8, Luke tells us that when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And so the young men rose, they wrapped him up, and carried him out for burial, as was customary in that day. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, told Peter the same lie, and as a result, he said to her, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down and breathed her last as well. This was God's act. And we have to ask ourselves, I mean, in fact, there's a natural curiosity. Was this too heavy-handed? How is this the God of love? After all, they, this couple had done some good, right? By giving to, these, to meet the needs of other people. They hadn't been compelled to do this. Well, when we see their sin in light of what Peter says about it, I don't think that we can say that this is too heavy-handed at all. This is what all sin deserves, there are real consequences for sin. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? God takes His holiness and the holiness of His people seriously. Which, as we see this, we, we have to think to ourselves, each and every time we ourselves sin, why are we not struck down? 
And the only answer is that God is gracious. And he set an example here for the church to show how serious he takes his holiness. Luke shows us actually how God defended the purity of his name, the integrity of the church, and how he chastened Ananias and Sapphira for this sin. There are real consequences for our sin. And we are warned by Peter to be on our guard because we have an adversary who prowls around like a lion seeking who he may devour. How true it is, as John Owen says, you must always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. From where we're standing, looking at this, this is a heavy text, right? It, it, it create, this is not the kind that you, you get done and you go, wow, amen. It almost looks from our perspective like Satan managed to win a victory here against the church. After all, since he hadn't been able to unhinge the church by opposing it with pressure from outside, we see that he's now apparently decided to try and pollute it from the inside. But God did not allow that. Even though this result resulted in Ananias' and Sapphira's death, we see that God still triumphed over the situation. In both instances, when Ananias was struck down and when Sapphira was struck down, Luke says that great fear and awe came upon the church and upon all who heard what had happened. So the church took the warning. It was not wasted. Great fear fell on the church. Not the sort of fear that sin produces, the sort of fear that is afraid of God, but the sort of fear that sees the gravity of His majesty and wonders at it. The sort of fear that keeps us when we feel temptation coming on us to recognize, I hate that because I love the glory of God more. That's what this sort of fear that we're talking about is. This is the sort of reverence that the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. It's the sort of fear that is able to give us strength to resist the devil and to say no to those old desires for sin. Friends, this isn't a game. Satan would love to influence you to take God's grace for granted. The enemy is real. And he's more subversive than sometimes we realize. The good news is that although his power and his wrath are great, though he is armed with cruel hate, he has in fact been defeated. And the believer's hope, even while we fight with sin, even as the smoke of that battle rages, that we have a victor, and his name is Christ, and in him we are more than conquerors. So here, here's what we need to do, I think, in light of what we read here, specifically in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. First, understand how serious God is about his holiness and yours. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you bear his image. You bear his name. So put off those former ways. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Build your priorities around His and seek the honor that comes from God, not the fleeting praise of men. Second, be willing to receive correction. Be willing to receive correction. Ananias and Sapphira received swift discipline from God and it had an impact on the whole church. Jesus has given his church instructions not only in how we walk together by encouraging one another to live in faith 
and instructing one another. He's also provided us with instructions on how to correct one another so that we don't get led, led into, astray into such sin. Third, adjust your expectations for the church. I read a story uh, recently about a conversation which the, the well-known and uh, le- the, le- the, um, the legend Spurgeon had with a person who, was gr- who had grown critical of the church. And they said that they were going to leave and they were going to go find the perfect church. To which Spurgeon responded, Friend, when you find it, please don't join it or it will cease to be perfect. There are no perfect churches in this world because there are no perfect Christians. A day is coming when our struggle with sin will cease, when we will be perfected in the presence of the glory of Jesus. But that day is not yet. And that is why God has given us each other to encourage one another to go on running the race that has been set before us, rejoicing in each other's joys and bearing one with one another in each other's sorrows, providing for one another so we're not tempted to turn to sinful means, confronting one another when we fall into sin, restoring one another in repentance and resting assured in the power of the name of Jesus to which we belong and in which we have put our hope. That's why the church is here. Not to be perfect, but to be a reflection of the perfection of Christ and to point one another to faith. It is so tempting. I love our church, and I want everyone else to love our church too. And it is so tempting to talk to people who are outside of our church, almost to advertise it to them, right? So I want them to be there. I want them to get to enjoy the beauty that I get to enjoy when I'm with you. And it's sometimes, it's it's frustrating and it, it can be a little demoralizing when you see someone like see that beauty and then walk away from it. This is not a show, right? This is a family. We are one body. Let's be that body together. The fourth thing to take from this is to submit yourself first and foremost to God. You have an adversary who wants to destroy you. James 4 says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James M. Montgomery Boyce says, Some have tried to resist the devil without first submitting to God and have found the devil does not flee them. Rather, the devil runs us over like a tank because he's more powerful than we are. We stand only when we first submit to God because only there do we stand in God's strength. Oh, that Ananias and Sapphira had first submitted themselves to God before they submitted their gift before the feet of the apostles. So if you hope to resist the devil, first submit yourself to God. Fifth, entrust yourself to our loving Lord. Friends, God wants you to fear Him, but He does not want us to be fearful of Him. Have you ever laid on your back on a clear summer night when the stars blazed so brightly that it made you feel like you were going to fall off the earth's surface and be lost forever? Have you ever been on a boat and peered into the ocean, or maybe, maybe, maybe the lake, and realized how vast and deep it is and felt small inside? Have you ever felt your health stripped from you by a tiny virus? I have. Friends, 
God made all of those things. They exist for His glory. He breathed those stars out. He sets the boundaries of the waters. He reigns over the great and the small. And that same God made you. He sustains you. He provides for you and He loves you. In the pinnacle action of love, He sent His only begotten Son to pay for your sin. Do not hold His glory cheaply. Fear the Lord and you will find that your awe for Him and your love for Him will grow. Now this morning we have seen that God prioritizes two things for His people. Unity and holiness. And we've seen in Luke's record here about how God accomplished that, uh, how he worked that in the early church. As we look at this, um, we need to embrace these same priorities for our own life. As we consider what it means to be a church together, let us follow him in faith. Let's pray. Our great and heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come before you. Father, this is your church. It is your church. And we who have believed know that you have called us to be your people. And Father, just as Jesus said that he had other sheep not of the fold, not of, the, not of that fold that he would call to himself, and that he, when he said that, he would, uh, that, that his sheep know his name, and they come when he calls, and that he will not lose a one, we know that you are still doing that today, that he is still calling. And we pray, Father, that we would be faithful to serve in the ways that you have called us to do and that we would follow you as your people. Father, we pray earnestly that you would unite us together in this community that we see in the, in the, in the first century church. Father, we pray that we would not... Uh, have, that we would put to death selfish hearts and selfish desires, that we would give freely what you have given to us, that we would treat everything we have as a means for making much of the glory of Christ, so that those things really do, really, so that we really do enjoy those things the way they're meant to be enjoyed, and that as that joy bubbles out of us, that others would see that as well and want that for themselves. Father, we pray that the light of Christ would shine out brilliantly for us. And according to that, Father, we ask that you would sanctify us in all holiness by your Spirit. And that as you do, that we would exalt the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the name at which every knee shall bow and tongue confess, that he is Lord to your glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.